Hey, dear listeners, today's guest is the very talented Chloe Grace Moretz. You know her from the kick-ass movies Carrie, Suspiria, The New Tom and Jerry, and over 50 other films. She's only 24, but as you'll soon find out, wise beyond her years. Later in the episode, I'm happy to welcome a new expert to Unqualified, Dr. Lisa Marie Bobby. Dr. Bobby is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a board-certified life coach, and the founder and clinical director of Growing Self-Counseling and Coaching in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Bobby has some great advice that I wish someone had given me 20 years ago. As always, I really appreciate all of you that have reached out, left comments, and reviews. I really do enjoy hearing from you. If you have a story that you want to share, please go to our website, unqualified.com, and find the link to get in touch. Okay, here's Chloe. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hello. Hi. Long time coming. I'm so excited to be doing this today. Me too. Are you in LA? I am in LA. It's rainy, it's dreary, and I like it. I know, finally, right? It's like you've been stuck indoors and it feels so awful when it's 80 (laughs) degrees and sunny. Yeah. (laughs) But I grew up in Washington State where it rains all the time. It rains all the time. And it's like, uh, I just want to eat chicken pot pie. I just want to eat chicken pot pie. You have the most amazing skin. Thank you. I redid my whole kind of regimen. I used to have cystic acne. I used to develop it on my chin. Did you? Yeah. Like hormonally, you think? Yeah. And I would take antibiotics. Like it was tough as an actor. A big thing. Yeah. And painful. Horrible. So what did you do? I did a few different things. So of course, when I was younger, I'm bummed that I went on Accutane, which was one thing, but it honestly didn't particularly help me. It kind of just made a whole lot of other problems. And so I basically started working with a woman named RPK and she is completely holistic based. So everything is based in like organic whole products you can buy or eat yourself. Like if you can't eat it, you shouldn't put it on your face basically. So I only wash my face with olive oil and I concoct my own toner based of like apple cider vinegar and rose water. And then if I need like a cleanser, I use honey. What? It's pretty crazy. Like I've gotten my best friends to start the olive oil thing and it literally changes the entire quality of your skin. Your skin produces its own oils. It regulates the irregularities. And also it helps your skin naturally defend itself. And when you're wearing makeup, it's crazy because like what you do is you put the oil in your hands and then you rub it in your face. And so the first time with makeup, you do it, then you wipe with a wet towel and then you do it again and then you wipe and you basically keep going until it just runs yellow with the color of the oil. But sometimes with a lot of the makeup we wear on set, it takes 14, 15 like rounds of it. And the reason is, is instead of doing a cleanser, the oil begets oil. So your pores open up to the oil and allow the oil in to push the makeup out. Whereas with the cleanser, you're digging the makeup into your pores. I have to tell our listeners, if this sounds like, what a weird launching off place, you really should see Chloe's skin. <laughs> it's stunning. 
I can go into a whole gambit of the things that I do for my skin. You are the proof. Also, like those rose quartz rollers. Yeah. It sounds stupid, but I sit around and I do it all day and it's face training and my entire shape of my face changed. Shit, I want to go get mine. I never use it. It got like dust, you know. I'm telling you. Yeah. It, well, you got to clean it because then I started getting acne from it. <laughs> so then I realized I have to like soak it in alcohol. So that was also like a learning curve. <laughs> you look amazing. Is there something that you learned about yourself that you didn't know before this past year? Yeah. I mean, a few different things. I think, for instance, I grew up in Georgia till I was five. We moved to New York for a year and then I moved to LA with my family. And so all those years I started acting at five. And so from there forward, I was making a few movies a year till now. So the first time I've ever been in LA for the amount of time that we have over this quarantine is the only time I've been in LA for this amount of time. I've always said like, oh, you know, I live in LA, but I really don't. Like I spend pretty much nine months of the year in other places. I come home. It's more of like I vacation in LA. I bet you have some awesome suitcase recommendations. Oh my gosh. I'm still <laughs> living in suitcases, yeah. even though through the quarantine I've been home. I still haven't unpacked my suitcases. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I will say like, it's been a journey for sure. I think I, I got reacquainted with really what being by yourself is kind of like in terms of, you know, you can still be surrounded by your family even, but it's still, you know, there's the inner monologue that starts to happen with, I think, people like us who work in an industry that is quite on the go. Everything is kind of fast paced. There's always something happening. You can really fill your time up in your day with a million and one things. Even if you are in LA, you can go to this meeting and that meeting and then go to lunch and then go to yoga or, you know, whatever your schedule is, you can really pack it full. And I think the first thing that really hit me was just like, I found my own pace, which I thought that I needed to do all these things in a day, especially with like making myself feel good, like, you know, not getting anxiety from feeling like, oh, I'm stagnant or I'm not moving forward with something. What I really learned is like, there's some beauty in the stagnation and there's some beauty in understanding the stillness around you and paying attention to things that you never would have paid attention to. Be that relationships, you know, emotions within yourself all of a sudden you're like, oh, I like that or I don't like that. Or actually, this is something that is more me than I thought it was prior to. You know what I mean? Completely. I was like, man, the last few months I have been very anxiety ridden in a very specific way that does not relate to our industry. It feels good. It feels really good. I used to be like, I want to be doing that. Right. Where do I want to be next year? Or like, what am I looking for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Or like, where am I in this shakedown? Right. And shakedown. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been thinking about that. And it feels really good to not because it also feels like you can control it to a certain extent, but it's a pointless activity. Anyway, that feels really good. I've also been like knitting and puzzling a weird amount. You know, I thought I liked puzzles and then I really tried to like puzzles during quarantine. And I, I got so frustrated because I like to do things that I can do. And I like being like tactile. Like I was really good at baking bread. Like I learned how to do it. I was making like four loaves a day. I was waking up at like 5 a.m. to like make bread. <laughs> I was just making too much bread. Did you get good? Are you good? Yeah. And I was able to progress in it. But with the puzzling, uh-uh. Mm -mm. It's the same thing with crafting, though. I hate crafting. Chloe, I am kind of with you. But I use puzzling to not unload the dishwasher or finish the laundry. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. You know, it's <laughs> like there's a puzzle. I got to do the puzzle. There's 1,500 pieces laying here. And I am trying to do it. I have the whole sky to build and they're all blue. 
Chloe, are you the kind of person, do you talk on the phone like for hours with your friends? I mean, it kind of depends. I mean, I love FaceTiming my friends. I think that is probably the thing I do the most. We have a text thread between my very best friends and I, and we call it having a crisis. And I think that kind of explains, we all like file in on this group when any of us have something to say or something that's happened in our lives, or maybe just to talk about like what the Easter eggs are in Taylor Swift's new album. So it really kind of ranges varying. Some days it's politics, some days it's personal issues, and some days it's Taylor Swift. And then (laughs) if something's going on, then we'll do like a group FaceTime. So it's my three best friends. I really only have three friends in the real sense of people that I talk to regularly and we really check in on each other. You know, there's a bunch of people that I really appreciate and love, but like I've had my three best friends for as long as I can remember. And it's one of those relationships with each of them that we can go periods of time without talking. And when we do check back in, there's no question of whether or not, you know, we've been there. And they understand, you know, especially Mia and Karina, who have known me since I was eight years old, they know that there's times when I go away to film in different countries for eight, nine months. So they're very used to kind of me going away and they've never pushed me or made me feel feel bad about that or anything like that, which other people that I knew growing up really did. I can relate to the people that have maybe a different agenda Mm -hmm. and the exhaustion level that it requires to kind of tend to them. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's exactly that. It's like, I can't, I'm sorry, but like, I would rather not have a friendship than have one that is not fulfilling for both parties, you know? And I think that goes for giving each other space and time. I think there's a false sense of ownership, I think, over another person's time that a lot of people get. And that just doesn't fly with me. (laughs) So we sat together, right, at the Oscars. Yes, I was going to mention that. And we shared M&Ms. Yeah. We were starving. (laughs) And there was no food. (laughs) And I remember you instantly being, you made me feel like we were really tight. I was so grateful to you because... (laughs) I mean, we're at the fucking Oscars. It was so weird. That is like a place I do not belong. Yeah, it was crazy. It wasn't like Oprah. There were some really famous people around us. <laughs> I felt so unqualified to be there. I was just sitting around and I was like, this is like, what's going on? And then there was that whole other like, <laughs> some point you'll have to like give me all the details. There was a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> I know. But it was fun. You made the night like so enjoyable for me. Likewise, like honestly, sitting behind you was such a highlight because I just enjoyed that we were able to kind of cut the shit a little bit and just like talk genuinely and just to kind of be like, you know, where are we? Quite frankly, this is a wild and exciting, amazing experience to be able to be, you know, there surrounded by all these people. But also it's one of those moments where you're like, what? Like, this is the industry that we're in. Like, that's, it's just wild. It's very confusing sometimes. And then there's like the mundane, practical things that I think that people don't think about. Like, yeah, we were in the middle of an aisle that's narrow. Yep. Like, imagine walking down like a narrow theater aisle, not like a movie theater. It's narrow. And there's a bunch of movie stars in your way. And there's a bunch of dresses. <laughs> and you're wearing like a full sequin dress. So when you sit on it, like your legs and ass are permanently imprinted. Oh, with yeah, pokey sequins. You're wearing somebody else's fucking jewelry. You have to pee, but you can't. You can't. Because are you going to be the person to walk out in the middle of the Oscars? Right. Sorry. Excuse me, Oprah. I'm so sorry, Meryl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
But no, I remember just giggling with you and being like, oh, thank God Chloe's right next to me. I felt the same way. And I don't think we had met, but you treated me like an instant buddy, which I so needed. Yeah. And what I will say is I think that like growing up, I'd always watched you and the way that you are yourself in interviews and the way that you were and are as an actress. You were always authentic and you always kind of pushed the envelope on things. And that's something that I've always aspired to. And actually, when I went to go do Neighbors too, like I watched a lot of your comedy to be able to like glean pushing the boundaries and kind of doing stuff that's a little wild. You know what I mean? That like (laughs) women don't usually have the opportunity to do. Thanks. And so I was excited to meet you and I was excited to sit beside you. And I think in that sense, like your reputation precedes itself in that I knew that you were kind of going to be a cool, normal, you know what I mean? Cut the shit kind of person and that we could just talk with each other and have a nice time. And it honestly was like a really easy connection between you and I, which was really fun. Oh my God. I had this memory of, (laughs) I won't say the celebrity, but I remember you like grabbing my hand and you were so sweet and you were like, this thing is happening and I want to tell you about it and I was like uh-huh. Chloe and I have been separated at birth somehow this is amazing <laughs> Chloe according to your IMDB which I totally believe you've done over 50 movies yes so you truly like when we think about like living out of a suitcase yes ma'am they're there and they are a part of your mobile life yes I am a circus yeah how do you cope with loneliness I was a pretty solitary person, and I think I still sort of am. I don't know. When I would go away to shoot, I enjoyed elements of that. But there are also places or projects that you shoot on when it feels, for me, if I'm not having a totally cohesive, enjoyable experience, and I feel kind of on my own at the workplace and then back at the hotel and back wandering around a city. Mm-hmm. It's a unique kind of loneliness that you know probably better than anybody. Yeah. I'm intrigued by like when you were loneliness mm-hmm. and how you cope and if you enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing that a lot of people aren't kind of aware of, you know, with actors and especially if you enjoy what you're doing and you kind of want to do more projects and stuff like that. A lot of things get sacrificed along the way and people think it's very glamorous and stuff like that. And the reality is, you know, there's like maybe some moments like when you are able to go to the Academy Awards, like that's exciting. Like that's probably like the most glamorous side of it. But in actuality, you know, we're working 18 hour days in places we've never really lived. We're going back to hopefully an apartment or a house, if not a hotel, which I find a little more lonely if you go to a hotel. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So for me, like growing up in the industry and being a child actor, I was lucky enough that like it was mandatory that my mother was required to be with me. So my mother always had a sense of really wanting to implement regularity into my life. So I had the same tutor from the time I was six to 18. So that was one thing that really allowed me to have a pace where going to these locations was exciting in a way. And you had your team. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't kind of being beat up by anything on set and then not having anyone to talk to. But then obviously as I grew up, (laughs) you know, that's a, a thing that comes with it, which is learning your own voice, learning how to deal with your own emotions on set, learning with, you know, maybe Maybe if a director comes at you in a certain way and you don't get along very well, that's kind of something to figure out. And it's stressful. And especially as a woman, I mean, I don't know. It's something where I feel like I've been in certain positions sometimes where I'm like, oh, I don't feel good about this. I feel like I'm not being listened to or I feel like I'm not being heard. And a lot of it is because I'm a woman or a young woman where, you know, they kind of look at me like, oh, you know, do you even really deserve to be here when it's like I've been doing this for 16 years. I've done this. I've done so many films where the places I feel the most confident are on set. Chloe, 
I was watching a clip of you describing when you were 16 about the wardrobe that was put into your trailer. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind talking about that. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about that. No, I mean, that goes linear with that. That's what I thought. In that moment, like, if I didn't have my family with me, I don't think I would have spoken up in the way that I did. I was 16. I was on a film. And one thing that the studio I was working for really wanted, I guess, after we did the screen test is they, well, I guess I'll start with this. I've always looked really young. I think even now at 23, a lot of people are like, what are you, 18? It is what it is. I'm fine with it. I don't really care. I also don't try to make myself look older. I don't really mind. Dude, that olive oil. But like, you know, one thing for me is I never had the boobs and a a five foot five girl who is a little bit on the shorter stature. So I didn't have all these like womanly aspects of me. And I guess the movie I was doing, they wanted to, I guess, sexualize me a little more. And I showed up in my trailer on the first day of production after we had done all the rehearsals and all the screen tests. And And all the fittings, I imagine. And all the fittings. All the fittings. And there were chicken cutlets in the trailer waiting for me. And for anyone who doesn't know a chicken cutlet, if there's any guys listening, those are like little silicone type. I don't think they're little. They're big. Yeah. It's like an actual chicken breast. Totally. And they make you sweat, too. They kind of, like, stick to your flesh after, like— Yeah. And, like, I had never seen them. (laughs) I only knew about them, like, maybe from movies where they make fun of them or make them funny or something like that. But I had never seen them in person, especially pertaining to a 16-year-old girl. So I was just kind of like—I looked at my mom and my brother, and I was like, what is this? And my mom was like, oh, hell no. She was like, that is, like, not okay that that's in here. And I was like, this is, you know, disturbing on a multitude of levels. And I ended up, you know, kind of going to the studio execs that were on set and kind of being like, what is it that you thought you were doing? And I won't be doing that. And you can basically go to your higher ups or whoever decided to tell you to do this. That, first of all, like it must kind of be illegal. Like you can't really do that to young women. And if anything, you just gave me a complex by saying that my boobs aren't big enough, by saying that I need bigger boobs. And that complex started there. And through the years that definitely, you know, it exacerbated itself. And I think with the body dysmorphia that women are already naturally predisposed to having from society, the industry doesn't do anything to help that. You know, nowadays, I think there's a lot more discussion about it, which is amazing. But when I was 17, no one talked about it. But Chloe, I mean, I think it's amazing that you went to the producers and they had the gall to say it came from the studio. Yeah. Like nobody was willing to like own. Yes. Yeah. They all tossed it up the ladder. Which indicates that they were embarrassed, which is good. And didn't know how to deal with a really confident, (laughs) smart actor that they hired. Yeah. I mean, a big part of that was also like my mom is a really strong woman and having the protection and security of having my mother on set with me and my brother at the time, you know, who still travels with me a lot. Having the ability to have those people behind me and be like, okay, I'm going to stand up for myself and I can do this because also my career was never made out to me to be the end all be all. You know, it wasn't this, if I'm not an actor, I'll be nothing. My mom was always like, you know what, if you wake up one day and you don't want to do this, quit. Like do whatever you want to do and trust your instincts and trust your gut. But make sure that if you're going to go do this, you stand up for yourself in the way that you deserve to be heard. And that started when I was younger and, you know, men were like, I don't think that a 14-year-old girl would say that. And I'm like, hi, 14-year-old girl present. And I would say that, you know, and just kind of like things like that, you know. Chloe, what was your most enjoyable shooting experience and what character do you hold close to your heart? 
I think one would obviously be kick-ass, you know, being able to do a character where I was able to train for nine and a half months and learn. Do you love that part? If I was in kick-ass, I would be like, that was awful. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think growing up with four older brothers, I love trying to kick and beat them up. So then learning to properly do it made me so happy. And you're so great in it. And it's a great movie. (laughs) Thank you. You know, that was something that I loved being able to mix in my physical strength. And I think that was something that also like showed me to stand up for myself as I grew up because I understood my physical strength and kind of power as a woman. And I honestly think every young woman when they're 11 or 12 years old should take some sort of, you know, fight training because it really does give you an edge where you're like, come at me. Like, you know, maybe I'm only 98 pounds or less at that age, but I had the ability to at least think about what I'm going to do. Well, and with the physicality, of course, you can adapt your face. Yeah. If you don't feel strong, mm-hmm. there is an insecurity when you're attempting to make something strong. Yeah. A very strong facial expressions or you have to deliver a strong line without right. feeling that. It can feel false. Even if you can dupe the audience, I think yeah. you still feel a little bit like, eh, well, they buy this. <laughs> yeah, like that can get vaudeville quickly on that in your own mind. Even if it does fool the audience, you're kind of like, oh, I'm a liar. <laughs> and will it work? I sure hope it fits in. <laughs> but it might not. Yeah, you know, you're like watching the first cut of the movie and you're like, I hope this is going to be good. But I also could be horrible in this. But we'll see. <laughs> hey, Chloe, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Yep. Do you eat boxed cereal? I love cereal. I wish I could eat it more. It makes me feel kind of bad. I'm worried that your skincare regimen also involves diet, and therefore I will not have skin that looks like yours at all. (laughs) Honestly, it mainly involves lack of alcohol is the big one. That's good. When I ended up cutting alcohol out of my life, I have it every now and again, but when I ended up cutting it out, you know, even just like a glass of wine, my skin really overhauled. Obviously, once I was 21. Of course, Chloe. Never before. (laughs) Oh, wait. Okay, so box cereal. What's your favorite? Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. For sure. What about you? I'm going through a raisin bran phase right now. I have a raisin issue. I love raisins. Oh, I hate raisins. I know. Most people do. But I like raisins in like a cinnamon raisin bagel. Yeah, or a cookie. No. One thing that makes me so angry I love chocolate chip cookies, but nothing makes me matter when I think it's a chocolate chip cookie and it's oh. a damn oatmeal raisin. It hurts my heart. Chloe, I am the exact opposite. No. I love a chocolate chip cookie, but if I'm expecting a raisin. <laughs> don't you get those chocolate chips out of her cookie. <laughs> Chloe, do you believe in ghosts or aliens? A hundred percent. I mean, I think I've always had like one toe in the occult of the world. I've always been interested in it. And I've had several ghost experiences in my life, good and bad. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, I stayed in a really spooky hotel in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And my mother and I had a really bad experience with a ghost that we would come out of the bathroom and our clothes would be thrown all around the room. And what? You know, I would hear him whispering in my ears at night. What would he say? Just weird stuff like try and open your eyes, try and open your eyes, try and open your eyes. You can't. Or like you can't move, you can't move. And weird stuff like that. And I would hear straight up walking and I would feel like cold touches. It sounds silly, but I 100% have dealt with it over the years. I kind of gotten to the point now where I just go like, nope, (laughs) like I can feel it sometimes. And I just like shut it off in my brain. And I'm like, no, thank you. I'm all good. I am not going to be like chilling tonight with this. And it happens when I travel to like foreign countries a lot. I find it happens in a lot of hotels. 
I also stayed in a hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, and it is one of the most haunted hotels in America. All these really dark rituals went down and there was a lot of murders of young prostitutes and stuff like that back in the 1920s. And so it has a very long history. And when we stayed there, my brother and my mother and I, we all had horrible, horrible experiences. My brother ended up pretty much seeing a dark apparition that was like a see-through black cloud. And it was like beside his bed and ended up physically holding him down and hurting him. And he had bruises. What? Uh, Yeah. I have weird, weird stories. That's why I also don't stay in hotels. I think it's because the spirits recognize that you're an old soul. (laughs) Maybe. They're like, yeah, wait, wait, are we going to reach out to her? They're like, hey, (laughs) we saw you (laughs) back in 1845. (laughs) Welcome back, (laughs) Shelly. No, I'm Chloe now. Stop. I love it. I also believe in aliens just because I think it's self-centered of us to think that we're the only things that matter. I think humans, we don't get that too. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. <laughs> I'm much more cynical and clinical about these ideas. Yeah. But I do think that our imaginations are very limited, unfortunately. I wish they weren't. But I do believe that we don't have a great idea of everything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Chloe, if you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? I mean, my dream is to eventually get out of L.A. and like own a ranch in Tennessee or somewhere back in the south and have like a ranch with, you know, horses and cows and goats and a little bit of a sanctuary. So Maybe that or up north and kind of go to Oregon. I have a real heart for the Pacific Northwest. And I think staying somewhere in Oregon for a year would be really wonderful. Chloe, I think you should do this sooner rather than later. I know. I think so, too. I've like really been getting the itch for it. And I think that's one thing I've also learned over quarantine is having a place in L.A. is great. And I think I'll always maybe have something here. But ultimately, I don't think it like fulfills me in the way that it used to. Yeah, I'm with you. I've talked a lot about this, but there isn't that comforting wave Mm that you have at a place Mm -hmm. that you identify as home. A hundred and ten percent. Also, the entitlement, I think, that's been shown from a lot of the people that live in L.A. during the pandemic. It's been a little disappointing. My mother, you know, she's high risk. She has one kidney. And so we're super locked down here at the house. And I think it's just been really frustrating because there's a lot of people I see that are just really doing anything they want against all guidelines. And it's just kind of been disappointing because I ended up filming a movie in Boston and the people of Boston were so game to follow the rules and be there for each other. And the pride of the city supported the fact that they all wanted to wear masks. They all wanted to be true to what they were being told to do. And that mentality, I was like, see, I respect that. But the way in LA is like, well, you know, I'm more important. And like, if I get COVID, I'm not going to hurt anyone. And like that mentality, I think just kind of really showed like the darkness of LA in a lot of ways for me. Yeah. I'm with you. We bought a used camper van last spring. Oh, that's cool. That's fun. It was great. I wanted to do that. It's been awesome, really. Where'd you go? A cabin up in Washington State. Oh my gosh, you're living my dream. (laughs) That's amazing. 
Yeah. So we would just sleep in the van and kind of go back and forth a bit. But even at like gas stations, we had people telling us to fuck off because we were wearing masks. Wow. Yeah. It was like the highly politicized situation. It became so personal. Yeah. It was bizarre. And there's more of a divide in the Pacific Northwest than I was aware of. Yes. I didn't realize that till recently that there was such a cultural divide of ideas. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you this. Would you rather travel by train or by boat? I get seasick, so I love the idea of a boat, like an old transatlantic trip on a boat. But I would prefer train. Also, I'm afraid of derailing, but I would probably prefer a train. (laughs) Really weighing the death. (laughs) Do you have a favorite movie that you could watch over and over, Chloe? Yeah, I mean, I would probably say Roman Holiday or Breakfast at Tiffany's. Those are probably two films that I've seen more times than I can count. And, you know, they're both one type of film, I think, that transports me to why I really fell in love with acting in the first place, which was Audrey Hepburn. You must have seen Charade. Yes. I love Charade. (laughs) It's amazing. I really think about the golden age of cinema in such a wonderful way. But then when you look at all the documentaries, it was so dark. But I love the stories of that era. Yeah. It was just so interesting and so wild. And L.A. at that point in time was so wow, you know? Yeah. Okay. What intimidates you? Hmm. One thing I'm doing right now that kind of intimidates me, I like to feel intimidated a little bit because I want to get over those type feelings. Yeah. But I signed up for this Harvard extension class because I wanted to figure out what it was like to take a college class because when I turned 18, I decided not to do it. And so I'm taking this class with Professor Jennifer Hothschild and the class is called Race in a Polarized America. And I feel incredibly intimidated by everyone in the class. I think I really love to look at myself as an academic. I love learning. I love education. I love being a student. But academics intimidate me so much. I feel like I don't have a seat at the table to really say the things that I've learned over the years of like stumping for Hillary Clinton when I turned 18 and being a part of the Biden campaign. Like those things are so important to me, but it's so hard. Like I literally am nervous. I like feel my heart racing right now thinking about class, you know, on Monday Because I feel like I'm supposed to be in these breakout rooms talking to other people my age and older people too that are in the extension classes. And it's just like so nerve-wracking. It's such an interesting thing, but I'm so intimidated by it. And that's why I really want to do it. Well, I think it's amazing that you are doing it. And I imagine over Zoom though. Yes, and that's even more intimidating. Right, because the awkwardness of interrupting is a more aggressive act during Zoom. Yes, it's so hard. The group projects are so scary. I'm so scared. I love it that you're doing it. I went to University of Washington for five years and I graduated with a degree in English, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't a good student, nor did I enjoy it until probably my third year. Interesting. And then something clicked in me. I started to kind of get the hang of it, which truly just meant like be involved. Right. Like you can't help but be interested if you start to actually engage. Right. But for some reason, that took me like two years to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm kind of learning right now. Like with this breakout room, which is our version of talking to other students, I realized towards the end of it, I was like, I listened to the other groups of people, what they talked about during their breakout rooms. And all of the things they talked about were exactly the things I wanted to talk about, but what I held back from talking about. And I was like, okay, if I engage more next time and I actually speak about what I'm thinking of in that moment and we really start the conversation. Yeah. Hey, Chloe, I discovered eBay over quarantine and I bought a payphone, a big old AT&T proper payphone. 
proper payphone. I was going to get like an old cash register too. Oh, that's fun. The house is really cluttered. That's also something I've learned over quarantine is how much I hate picking up after myself constantly. Because when you're home more, there's so much more mess. We have three kids here. My fiance has two teenagers and I have an eight-year-old. can't imagine what that's like. Oh, I've just thrown in the towel. And for the first time in my life, I'm really fine with it. Yeah. I feel like that's a great place to be. Yeah. I'm happy for you to be there. Yeah, my fiance does my roots. We could, you know, do a little touch up maybe later. <laughs> They're not too bad, though. Yeah, well, yeah. Looking good. Okay, so what talent or ability would you most like to have? Probably the ability to speak fluently other languages. I think that's something that I've really wanted to do. And it's hard. It's a hard thing. Chloe, in college, I started taking linguistics because it fulfilled some requirements. Interesting. And I loved it. The study of language, especially for an actor, is fascinating. So interesting. Mm -hmm. The English language is incredible. I, I wish my vocabulary was more expansive. But, you know, other languages can have wonderful nuance to incorporate. Yeah, and the way they go about a sentence even, just the way that they get a word across can be so different than the way that we talk. It's just so interesting how each one varies. It also can describe character traits of a country, you know what I mean? And kind of the way people go about things. With all your experience in life, you probably had a lot of exposure to other languages. Which one would you pick? Weirdly enough, you know, when I did Suspiria, I found it really interesting. I had to speak German. I had to do like 25 page scene. And Luca Guaranino came to me when he asked me to do the project with him. He said, I want you to do the first 15 minutes of the movie. And it's going to be just like a 25 page scene, straight shot. Like we're just doing the whole thing and you're just going to act it out. And it's going to all be in German. And I was like, okay, cool. He was like, and you're going to start like learning German next week. And I was like, okay, we'll see what that looks like. And so I did it and I learned the 25 pages in German. And then I show up and like two days before filming, he's like, okay, I also want it to be in English. And I want you to be able to do kind of like, you know, in Spanglish, when you can go in and out of English to Spanish and it'll still make sense in the sentence, do that with German, which is much different. You know, it's very different. And it was interesting to be able to understand how to put the sentences together. And it made me kind of interested in learning German. And I just never followed through with it. That's amazing. Okay. What or who has most influenced your career? Just listening to my brother memorize his dialogue and me listening to it and learning it from hearing it. And I would learn monologues just from hearing them. I think the thing that's always excited me the most and what's influenced me the most is my like obsession, for lack of a better term, with feeling different emotions and figuring out what those emotions are and going through them and throwing myself into positions where I don't know what the hell I'm doing and trying to work myself out of that, you know, and going to places where, you know, you show up on set and you're kind of like, I don't think I'm going to be able to achieve this today. Like, I don't know that I can do this. And then the camera starts rolling and it's like showtime, like. Time to step up. You see people who are watching you and there's like money on the line and all of a sudden it just kind of happens or it doesn't and you feel like total shit, but (laughs) at least you're trying. And I think that's the thing that's influenced me the most is this striving to figure those emotions out. And it's gotten easier since I've grown up and had more like experience. I don't have to try as hard to reach those emotions, which is cool. And then the other thing is my mother and my brother. They're the people that have been there for me through everything. And working with my brother from a young age, I learned all the things that I know about acting and the way of going about the process of, you know, preparing. I learned all of that from working with him and what he taught me. So having him be in my career as my acting coach and my mother in my career as my friend and watcher and people to kind of be beside me and sounding boards 
I think they influenced me the most to become the woman that I am today on set. And I think politically as well, being able to speak up for what I believe in. I love that. Chloe, what qualities do you look for in a romantic partner? Someone who is truthful, honest. I think honesty is probably my biggest tick that I really look for in someone is someone who can tell you exactly how they're feeling or what you're doing right or wrong and stand up for themselves in that sense too and be able to have those frank discussions as well as someone who is in a way as much of a hopeless romantic as I am, you know, willing to kind of do those silly things on a whim and, you know, lock ourselves in a room all day and watch old movies and eat way too much, take out food and, you know, be pigs for the evening or also, you know, go and fly to another country and race around trying to figure out all the new things and eat new food. And, you know, I think that sense of adventure is something that I really look for I love that. I want to ask you if you have experienced heartbreak, because I feel like you're an intimate person and I hope you're okay if I go vaguely down these waters without getting too personal in your life. Yeah. But I mean, it's one of the more fascinating things I think that happens to us. Certainly impactful. I agree. Have you experienced heartbreak? I think I've experienced heartbreak in a few different levels. I think probably the biggest heartbreak I experience is family heartbreak. Not to go into something that's going to create a salacious headline, but, you know, we dealt with heartbreak in my family when my father left. And I think going through that as a young woman and seeing my blood turn away from blood and say, you know, I'm good. I'm out of here. And watching us kind of pick it up and be there for my mother and watch my brothers fill in in a way that they shouldn't have had to do at the age they were at and me fill in in a way that I probably shouldn't have had to do either. And, you know, the whole family has to figure out a new dynamic. I think that sense of heartbreak is one that I spent hours and hours in therapy about. And I'm very happy with where I am now in my life. And it doesn't affect me on a daily basis. But I think it is the most profound heartbreak I've gone through. And I think heartbreak is something that is so important to go through in life. And I've gone through other heartbreak. I went through a recent friendship heartbreak that was really hard to get past. Oh, I'm sorry. Someone I knew for a long time and there was a lot of dishonesty and stuff that we went through. And again, though, it changed me so much for the better. It was so hard. It was so hard. But I would never go back to the way I was before everything I realized was realized because The way that I am now and the way that I feel now is so much more rounded and I feel grounded in my decisions. I feel grounded in the way that I feel about myself and the things that I need. I trust my instincts more in a way and I think heartbreak is integral to life. You can't love, I think, without heartbreak because then you really understand what love is. You understand what commitment is. You understand what sacrifice is. I'm a big proponent of heartbreak. Do you fall in love easily? Would you consider yourself a romantic? I'm a romantic for sure. I don't think I fall in love easily. I think I'm so guarded from what I went through when I was younger with my father and everything like that. I definitely protect myself and I find it very hard to kind of break down those walls. But after trust and time really is put into something, I can definitely unravel and be at ease. But, you know, I definitely have a tick where if something goes awry, it's very hard for me to get back to anywhere near my openness. I honestly don't think I can work back from that in a lot of ways. I'm the same way. Yeah. And when I've been betrayed in relationships in the past, Mm -hmm. my initial reaction is what's wrong with them? Which, I don't know, I suppose is good. Maybe a little egocentric. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I totally get that. I think, you know, the ability to forgive the situation, but also not forget is one thing for me where I'm like, okay, good. You know, I'm going to go do my thing over here, but I am in no need to go back to where I was. <laughs> so I guess it's good that my reaction's always been like, well, that's surprising. You're like, well, I'm amazing. So why <laughs> yeah. would you want to lose this? <laughs> I mean, that's like the confidence in that is amazing. <laughs> Like, I'm here for that. It hasn't always been that solid, but I'm 44 now. Yeah, exactly. I'm 44, and now you can't shake me. Yeah. You're not taking down this broad. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Chloe, when have you thrown caution to the wind? I suspect that you do that pretty frequently. Yeah, I think I do it a lot where I'm kind of like, you know, I should probably be more cautious about this or like even going to this class. Like I'm definitely unqualified in the sense that like I definitely was homeschooled really well, but I have not sat in a class ever. So like I'm unqualified to really be there and like know how to take notes and this and that. But I'm like, you know what? I'm throwing caution to the wind in that sense of just being like guns a blazing a little bit and just kind of heading into the burning house and hoping that I get out. It's really inspiring that you're doing that. Thank you. I think that's incredible that you are striving for like just more in life. Yeah. More to like fill your brain and more experience. That's incredible. Thank you. Has a stranger ever changed your life? Yeah, I am open in that sense. I'm definitely open to experiences of even just, you know, coming across someone for a very short amount of time and having a large impact on each other's life. I kind of feel like as an actor, in a weird way, not to bring it back to our jobs, but we spend so much time in these traveling circuses that are sets and you meet people for very short periods of time. But I've had some of the most meaningful conversations and experiences through the people that I've met on set that I will probably never see again. You know, I think some of those moments where you are, you know, working 16, 17 hours, you're vulnerable, you're tired, you're this, you're that. Some of the conversations I've had with makeup artists, with costumers, those people that are with you day in, day out, I think they've shaped me in a lot of ways. You know, there was someone I worked with on a project who was my dresser on a project in New Zealand, and then she ended up coming with me to Tom and Jerry. And she had such a big impact on my life. You know, she was a total stranger that I'd never met before. And she was just such a bright light. And she used to call herself a rainbow. And she always wore all these rainbow colors. She was just like so cool and so kind and so real. And she made some of those hardest days so easy. And I was going through a lot emotionally. And she made my days just so doable on set to just be in those moments and be present. I think being open to those type of relationships is really cool. You need them too. And you're right about being open. That was my impression of you when we met. And it's a simplistic way to phrase something kind of unique and complex. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to whom would you most like to apologize and why? I mean, probably in a way, the person I've had to apologize the most to is myself. And I really took for granted the inner voice and the stuff that I went through when I was younger and bad things that happened to me and were done towards me when I was younger, you know, I really had to forgive myself for them not being my fault or them not being something that I caused. And I think that inner conversation was the hardest and is the hardest to constantly have because most of the guttural reactions you have that might not seem like yourself are that little girl in your heart where wherever something traumatic happened to you, your head kind of stays. I think for me, that would probably be the person I continue to want to apologize the most and be there for, the inner part of myself, because I think I didn't for a while. Yeah. What is your relationship with religion? I grew up. 
Christian Baptist. My mom is a born-again Christian. She has a very strong faith, and I really respect religion. I respect all religions, quite frankly. And I respect the effort and the energy that goes towards forms of prayer, be that, you know, meditation, and all the way down the line of all the different religions out there, and self-religion, and spirituality. For me, I don't have an organized religion that I feel is my one true thing. I find that I try to look inward and listen to myself and listen to feelings that I have around me and the things that I feel like I really pick up on and connect to the spirituality, which is all that we are surrounded by, all that we are, and that we are all feeding off of the energy and be that appreciating my little dog and what she gives me and the joy she gives me and giving that to her. You know, the appreciation of plants and land and the sun and the moon and Mother Earth and everything that we're surrounded by. I think the Native American sensibility of spirituality is probably the thing that I connect to the most. I love that. What is your relationship like with fame? I think fame is a crazy double-edged sword. I think it's the hardest thing to try and navigate when you're new to it especially. I think when it first kind of hits you, it's that first year or two that really I think you realize a lot of stuff about yourself. And then it's really kind of a maintenance after that of being like, okay, this is yes, this is no. I like that. I don't like that. And for me, it kind of became about wielding it in the right ways, kind of using the fame as more of a platform to enhance voices that aren't being heard. You know, especially I think it's been really seen through the BLM movement and people really finally speaking up and just kind of sitting back and using our platforms as more of a way to amplify marginalized people that deserve to be heard. I think that's one way to wield it in the right way. I think it's a very hard thing, though, to balance the power that is given to you with fame. And that power is easy to get drunk on, as is any power. And it's kind of a constant understanding of how do I speak who I am, speak my truth, stand up for myself, but also not be stuck in this echo chamber of what is the most important thing to you. And it's so easy to become trapped in an echo chamber of like me, 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 me. But in actuality, like you don't really mean that much in the grand scheme of things. And I think keeping that sensibility about yourself is good. Getting out of your comfort zone, going to small towns, going to other countries, you know, realizing that everything that we're surrounded by on a daily basis isn't that real, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. What's your relationship with the idea of patriotism? That is kind of exactly what we're talking about right now in my class. I think patriotism is a very interesting thing. It's been interesting since the Declaration of Independence. I think, you know, Frederick Douglass and the things that he's, you know, said and put into his speeches and the way he's spoken, he did an amazing speech, what Fourth of July is to the slave. And he speaks so eloquently in that. And, you know, I think patriotism is a hard thing to describe. You know, I grew up in the South where it means different things to different people. And I think it's been used as a really big weapon, quite frankly. I do too. And that disappoints me. I think that there's a lot of blind, unexamined patriotism. Yes. One of the many things that's great about our country is that we've allowed for critique and we just need to continue to encourage that. And that's, you know, that's one thing that Frederick Douglass really talks about in that speech is he says, you know, at that point we were only a 76-year-old country and he talks about how having hope in the fact that we were that young, that there is time for change and hope that through time, us being a young country, we can grow. It's hard to kind of look at from that point in time that speech was spoken to now how much growth has really happened and how much has the words and the division kind of really been grown deeper and how much have we realized that our liberal democracy is a little bit more that of a mirage. But now I think, you know, having Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the highest seats of office in our country, I think that promotes change, that promotes progression. You know, looking back and seeing Barack Obama become a president, you know, those are things that we can look forward to saying 
we have a future in this country of it becoming a good country and a proper liberal democracy and using visibility of social media and other ways of that, being able to put in laws in order to have a judicial system that stands up for all people, (laughs) you know, equally. Yeah. Chloe, I imagine that you have to surround yourself with people who very much understand that. Big time. Yeah. No, I mean, my best friend's I think the reason why we're as close as we are now is because I don't beat them up for them putting their time into their work and jobs and they don't beat me up for me putting my time into my work and job. And it's really easy to look at our job and be like, why can't you just call me? You know, why can't you just talk to me? Or why can't you come home from an 18 hour day and still talk to me? All you did was act all day. Like, I think all those things are really easy to, you know, look at them and make them feel really futile to the world. But in actuality, our lives are perspective. And for us, it is our job. And we're doing it correctly. We're putting all of our energy behind what we're doing. You need to have people around you that understand those sacrifices, you know. And I grew up with medical parents. So there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into medicine of time, you know, and a lot of our hours in our day as a family was divided between the hospital and us. You know, that's something you really learn and you respect the boundary of that. that that's their job. And that's very different because, you know, they're saving lives every day. And that's a totally different world. And I'm not even trying to compare our job to saving lives. But I learned respect of boundaries of someone's job in life. I don't doubt that you are highly considerate. I'm sure in your life, people have not understood how you, in order to achieve exactly what you have to. <laughs> I was married to two actors. And in some ways, that made it easier. Mm. Because the priority is understood. Right. But on the other hand, too, it makes it hard to clear your mind from the industry when it's already so consuming. Mm -hmm. All of it. Inundating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You seem like a very private person when it comes to discussing relationships. Yeah. One thing I prize probably the most in life is anonymity and privacy. Just in the sense of my relationship, I don't talk about where I am, who I'm with, what I'm doing, because I don't think that's anyone's, quite frankly, business because I have been in relationships in the past where I did share everything and I was super upset with sharing everything at the end of the day. As I grew up, I realized the thing I care about the most is keeping the most sacred things to me as close as I can. And in that sense, I respect long-term commitment. I crave long-term commitment. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. I think with that comes communication. It comes hard work. And I think it has to be a two-way street and a 50-50 in that sense. And I think those are the most important things to me and kind of watching my parents' relationship growing up. I knew that I wanted to make sure that both people in a relationship, no matter where I was and what relationship I was in, were always trying to achieve their goals at the same time. And one wasn't having to completely shorthand themselves. Obviously, there's sacrifice. But I think if ever I'm in a love relationship or a friendship and anyone is having to sacrifice or thwart their dreams for me, I would personally remove myself from the situation because I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. So for me, like, I think a balance of the scales with that is really important and having a heavy dose of realism of, you know, being in love, but also being like, is this actually fulfilling for both parties? Always. Completely. Do you think that you are a good judge of character? I think so. I think when I was younger, I got really caught up in like people being like, oh my God, I'm your best friend. I'm your best friend. I'm your best friend. And I'm going to show you these ways I'm your best friend. And the same thing in relationships is very easy to get there. And I think what I realized is usually when people create that much of a charade, it's probably not that honest. Yeah. When you feel like it isn't. And I think just trusting your gut and your initial kind of reaction. And if someone's kind of just building your ego, 
probably not for the best things. So I think that that's something that I realized growing up. And then now I really have a heavy dose of just pessimism, I think, going into things and being like, oh, this is probably not going to work. And then if it surprises me, then I'm like, okay, that's cool. It is working. And like, this is going well. But if it's not, then I'm like, yeah, I knew it all along. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Yeah, of course. It's like the post-justification. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, when or where are you happiest or most content? At home. At home, cooking. I can't believe you still have the suitcases, like, within your... Yeah, they're upstairs in my hallway. I wonder if, to some degree, it's, like, a psychological hitch. Like, I think it kind of is. I'm just staring at them every day I walk upstairs, and I'm like, oh, I should probably do that. And then I go to my room, and I shut the door. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom and Jerry's coming out February 26th. Mm -hmm. How was that experience? Being a studio film, I felt like I got a little bit more time to like hang out with everybody, which was fun. We also worked with Rob Delaney. I just have to say he is so brilliant and so funny and such a great stand up. I just love him. And he's a really good guy. And he was someone who I didn't know very well. And we shared some really wonderful conversations. And he's just a really, really wonderful man. It is interesting when, like, there is, like, the safe person. Yeah, exactly. And also the other safe person was Tim Story, the director. Like, he was so cool. Yeah. And so nice. Studio sets can be so hard sometimes because there's so many people. Like, you can feel kind of really lost in the 100, 200 people you have on set. But Tim was so cool, and it was just so chill. The whole set was just so calm. That's great. You have another movie coming out. Uh, Tell me about Shadow in the Cloud. Yes. Yeah. Shadow in the Cloud is out on pay-per-view and then it's going to be hitting Hulu in March, I think. So you were shooting in London? Yes. We were at WB Studios. I forgot what they call them, but we were shooting. It used to be the old Rolls-Royce factory. And so there was no air conditioning and we were shooting in the middle of summer. And surprisingly, it's like really hot in London for like a month. Yeah. It gets humid. I was dying, dying, trying to do comedy against nothing because there was nothing there. 90% of the time was acting opposite puppets who couldn't speak. So they would tell me to improv and whatever I would improv. And then in my head, they would sign back to me. They could animate. So I was improving, imagining them signing back to me, improving more. And I felt crazy. It was like 100 degrees. All of a sudden, I'm sweating profusely. And I'm just like, what's going on? (laughs) It was so fun, though. I also will say, like, I don't get to do comedy much. And it was so fun to do comedy where also you can throw your body into it. And I was doing some really crazy stuff. And it worked. It was one of those things where I was like, this might not work. And I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, it's okay. (laughs) You don't hear that too frequently. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think is the meaning of life? Easy question. Super simple. No. I believed you. I was like, I know she totally has an answer for this. She's already thought about it. No, no, I haven't thought about it, but I'm going to think about it now. The meaning of life to me is a few different things. It's kind of as simple as like eating an orange. (laughs) There's something that is so incredible about the taste of an orange. The flavors that expand in your mouth and your brain. I think for me, it's moments like that that are the meaning of life for me. It's experiences that make me feel like this is why we're here. We're here to taste things like that. We're here to play with dogs. We're here to have babies. We're here to like watch our parents grow old and be there for them and care for them like they cared for us. Like the meaning of life is heartbreak, you know, love. It's smelling the smell of the earth after it rains. Like it it sounds so cliche and so Pinteresty and Tumblr-y. But like for me, the meaning of life is all those little moments and waking up 
and, you know, <laughs> being groggy and having coffee and like all those little moments, I think, are the things that are the most important. And having the human experience and the human experiment that we're all kind of walking around on this earth trying to figure out what our existence is. And it's a singular existence, quite frankly. You surround yourself by a bunch of people, but ultimately you come into this world alone and you do leave this world alone in a wonderful way. And I think I kind of chalk that up to an appropriate, healthy relationship with death. For me, I think that our American culture really fears death and it really disappoints me because we have no idea how to grapple with that fear. We don't even use the word death. We use the word passing away or we lost that soul and, and this and that when the reality is it is death. It is just the word death and we shy away from it. And there's no reason to shy away from it because it's a really wonderful thing. It kind of really puts everything into perspective. And I think you really realize that with health scares and stuff like that, or maybe having a child is something that would probably really reinforce that feeling because it's about that. It's about living. Chloe, that's unbelievably beautiful. And I love the idea of like, until we collectively recognize and accept, maybe even embrace, yeah. how can we have proper perspective on our priorities in the moment on a daily basis? And I think you just put that so beautifully. Thank you. One last question. Do you have a favorite joke? Do I have a favorite joke? I think the joke that I've said the most in my life is the stupidest joke ever. Can we hear it? And it's, yeah, what is brown and sticky? I don't know. A stick. <laughs> That's about it, kids. That's all you got, folks. <laughs> I also love jokes that have no real punchline where someone leads you on for like four paragraphs and then they tell you something that's nothing. I also love jokes like that because it's just a waste of everyone's time <laughs> and it really makes me happy. <laughs> Chloe, I really would love to be your friend. Likewise. I really want to know about your moisturizer or whatever else you're using. Oh, I'll tell you all the things I do. I also use this infrared sauna, which really helps to detoxify and make your body feel really good. And it's just a blanket. Oh, I want one. <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much. I think you're just incredible. You really are a gem. Thank you. Thank you. No, this was so fun. This is honestly probably the most intimate conversation I've ever had publicly. And I really appreciated our conversation and I really appreciate you as a person. And I think, I don't know, I've just read so much of what you've said and I appreciate the way that you hold yourself and the things that you say. And you're super, super honest in your podcast, especially. You're super honest about where you're at in your life and how you feel and your relationships with people. And I think that's just a great way to lead. And it's really wonderful. I can't wait to talk again. Bye, Chloe. Okay, bye. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
Hey everyone, I am so happy to introduce you to Dr. Lisa Marie Bobby, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a board certified life coach, and a whole lot more. Here she is. Dr. Bobby, great to see you. Thank you for doing this. It is my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. All right, let's call Anne Marie. Hello. Hi, Anne Marie. Hi. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's this is so crazy. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Anne-Marie, and for writing into us. I'm here with Dr. Bobby. She is the founder and clinical director of Growing Self-Counseling and Coaching in Denver, Colorado, and she is just amazing. Hi, Anne-Marie. Hi, nice to meet you both. Anne-Marie, will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, for sure. So I'm kind of in a tricky love triangle situation, which I hate to put it that way. I'll just kind of explain briefly what's going on. Around a year ago, this time, like literally the week that COVID hit, I went through the worst breakup of my life. I dated the guy for a year. We were so in love. We went to Japan together. We did long distance while I studied abroad in Japan for like five months. We're both seniors in college still and we're both film majors as well so we were always working on projects together we were best friends since like freshman year even though we only dated for a year it felt a lot longer than that because of like how deep our friendship was and when I got back from studying abroad he was acting really different kind of went through like a quarter-life crisis dropped out of school like broke up with me and like basically disappeared and it was so like out of the blue for me he was definitely my first love and it was rough it was really hard and in January finally when I kind of feel like I've overcome the breakup and I'm like in a better place I met this new guy and we started seeing each other and totally hit it off and I felt for the first time since my breakup like this is someone I have feelings for it to someone that I can see myself dating. And the week of Valentine's of all days, my ex reaches out and he wants to get back together. So I'm in this position where I do have feelings for this new guy that I've been seeing. And I've only known him for a month. And then compared to my ex, who I've known for four years and had this like great love with, and then this crazy breakup that didn't really have anything to do with me or our relationship, but like something like he was going through and he needed to do on his own. I don't want to hurt anyone. I want to be fair to both people. I'm just trying to like juggle this and figure out what's best for me at the same time. So it's a lot. And I love your advice. (laughs) God, well, uh, you know, when I first read your letter, Anne-Marie, it sounded like your ex was having some sort of like a like an emotional crisis. What was the timeline for his reemergence? And what did he say? Was he apologetic or regretful? <laughs> yes. In September of 2020, he reached out. He was like, I would love to see you and like talk. So I met up with him, but I was extremely closed off. I was still so hurt by everything that he like mentioned a little bit like could you see us getting back together? And I shot it down super quickly. I think I just was really overwhelmed with my work. And I was still so hurt by everything. I didn't really entertain it. So that was our first time seeing or speaking to each other really since our breakup. And then in January, I was producing a film and the director 
was pretty insistent on having my ex work on set. And so he was on set for three weekends. I was with him. Was he flirtatious on set, jovial? Was he distant? Was he like, what was his demeanor towards you? Was he professional? I think he didn't really know how to act either. So at first, like I was keeping my distance and we started to kind of chat a little bit and things were friendly. But we were definitely like asset was kind of progressing more friendly with each other. But I, in my head, was still pretty locked in on the guy that I was seeing at the time in January. Dr. Bobby, I already have some strong, stupid opinions <laughs> about Amory's <laughs> situation. But um, Dr. Bobby, I would love to give you a chance to delve into this. Well, I actually have a couple of just clarifying questions, if I may, Anne-Marie. For sure, yeah. First of all, was your ex-boyfriend aware of your new relationship when he came describing his undying love for you? Did he know that you were dating somebody? <laughs> he didn't. He didn't know. Okay. Okay. Good to know. And then the other question is, I mean, you described some kind of a quarter-life crisis where he's, like, dropping out of school and, like, all the, Do you have any idea what's going on with that? I mean, it still kind of baffles me a little bit because I was nothing but supportive when he was trying to change his life path. And I was trying to tell him, like, you know, it's okay to, like, like other things and want to explore other things. Like, you don't have to just, like, completely start clean if you decide you want to do something new. Mm -hmm. Do you think he has changed? Have you noticed any differences? He like basically changed his entire life, was unhappy with it, and then came back, has the same major, and wants to get back together with me. So he's trying to like, he threw all this stuff away, yeah. and now he's trying to grab all of it back. And for me, it's like, how can you go, how can you change and fix all those issues in under a year? Mm -hmm. So that is kind of where I'm hesitant to jump back into anything because he's saying he's changed, but I don't know. It's still kind of scary. And I still don't completely understand what was going on in his head when he decided to drastically change so many things in his life. You know, you, you guys are young and it is also very like a, a normal, you know, late adolescent thing to like try on different identities, to try to figure yourself out. But what have you learned about this person? I know that he he does love me. And he's one of those people where he's like, I want to be the best at like what I'm doing, which is why I think it's hard for him to entertain the thought of like doing multiple things. He kind of pigeonholes himself. He's like, after graduation, I have to stay in Nashville. Like, this is the only place I can get a job. And I'm like, no, you could reach out to people in New York. We've got alumni that are in California, you can reach out to them. Like you can, like you can do what you want to do. You can live in Japan if you want to for a year, like if you set yourself up for that. And so that's probably one of the biggest things that's stressful for me, because if I like set my mind on something, like I'll do it. And I do feel like when we were dating, he held me back a little bit in that sense. Mm -hmm. Anne-Marie, I don't know if this is similar at all. I dated a guy in college who made me feel that I was more of the adult caretaker, which I think a lot of women can get into in relationships earlier in your life. Mm -hmm. But that's a tough role, I think, for any person to be in. I remember breaking up with him and feeling like, I really want a guy who can make his own dentist appointment. <sighs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Anne-Marie, what you're describing is like a much more sort of secure orientation to the world where you feel like empowered and this person feels much more tenuous in terms of like his attachment and that he's almost perhaps seeking safety through his relationship with you. And actually, I, I feel like I have to back up just a little bit because what I'm about to share might not make sense without a little explanation. Is that is that okay? Oh, I'd love that. Okay. So there's a concept called attachment, which is like so important to understand in all human relationships, but especially in these kinds of relationship situations, Anne-Marie. And what it refers to are not just like our feelings of love and affection for each other. It actually goes much, much, much deeper. We humans are hardwired to bond to each other very, very fiercely. And there are not just emotional reasons for this, but like evolutionarily speaking, it goes back to like survival drive stuff. We humans cannot literally survive in the natural world in isolation. So we we evolved for many hundreds of thousands of years in like family groups, tribes of like 50 to 100 people, and our literal survival depended on us maintaining those relationships. And so we are hardwired to try to maintain our relationships, particularly when we start to feel anxious or threatened. And so we have these very powerful feelings inside of us that are from this like old brain self that are often in conflict with this more new, almost modern human part of our brain, which is the thinking part of our brain that understands why things happen. It has language. It's like, if this, then that. And I sort of hear these things in conflict inside of you, Anne-Marie, but also inside of your ex. The metaphor that people use to describe it oftentimes is like an elephant with a rider on top of the elephant. And so our conscious selves that are trying to like make decisions about relationships and figure out what to do is the rider that is often not even aware that they're sitting on this extremely powerful giant elephant that's really controlling the show and that speaks to us primarily through our emotions. I like that. <laughs> And so what you're telling me is that you had this powerful attachment to this guy that also perpetuated through a long-distance relationship, which is a very different kind of relationship, and that he was going through emotional things that made him, I hope it's okay to say this, but not a stable or reliable partner for you, that he wasn't a safe person for you, and that You've learned a number of things about him over the course of these years, including that he is sort of perfectionistic and kind of rigid and has all these things. But because we are so hardwired to maintain our attachments, it can become very confusing when we have this instinct to stay bonded to somebody, but that writer part of our brain is saying, but wait a minute. So that's kind of where I'm interested to go more is activating that writer part of yourself with, with questions like, you know, Based on what you know about this person and have learned over the entirety of your experience with him, like what does he do when he's under stress? The fact that he abandons people when he's not okay, you know, if we can assume that this is actually what it is like to have a relationship with this person, is this good enough for you? 
Does that make sense? Right. That's so true. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think especially women are very vulnerable to to thinking, but if he were different, then he would love me and he would be emotionally stable and supportive. And this would feel like a really good relationship for me, but it's sort of dependent on these different things needing to happen that haven't happened yet. So he's saying like, oh, I've changed. But if we assumed that you know what it is like to be with this person, would you still want to do that? It's weird, too, because the first half of our relationship before I went to Japan, it was perfect. Not perfect, but, you know, it was a really great relationship. We were, communication was always really amazing. My needs were met, his needs were met. And then I think when we had to do long distance, Mm -hmm. he started to go through his whatever. And I was, you know, trying to be in Japan away from my friends and family. And I really needed you know, my boyfriend, it's so hard because we had only dated, we hadn't even dated for a year when I went abroad. And Japan is so far away. (laughs) Yeah, well, and there is a particular kind of loneliness and homesickness that you get when you're away that feels very intense and specific and physical sometimes. And so I imagine feeling you know, a bit heartbroken. And on top of that, being in Japan, which is, I'm sure was exciting and thrilling, but there is that that specific loneliness being being so far away. Yeah. But I could also imagine, maybe I'm off base with this. I certainly have had the breakup experience where you break up, you get back together, you're together for a shorter period of time, you break up again, You break up maybe four times with the increments in between times becoming shorter and shorter. It's like a long, slow, terrible train. I could see if you got back together with this person that it may have that kind of pattern. Because your lives are so transitional right now, there's so much change. My gut would be to not get back together with this person. I I mean... It's hard to quantify missing somebody and missing a relationship. Dr. Bobby, what do you think? Well, there's this desire in all of us to have that secure attachment and to have like our special person. And in the early stages of this relationship, it felt like he was that. But I think you bring up such a great point, Anna, that it takes a long time to get to know people and what you learn about them and know is likely to happen again. I mean, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so the experiences are likely to repeat themselves. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. How was he when he broke up with you, Anne-Marie? Was he kind? I think he was so in his head and he was not acting like himself at all. And he was kind when he did it, but it was like, he broke up with me pretty quickly, like came over to my house. I was with him and his family, like in his hometown the weekend before, like I was shocked. And after that, pretty much cut off contact. Like every now and then we would text or something, but he was like not giving me anything. So I was sitting here trying to figure out like what went wrong. Is it because I went to Japan? Like, can I mess everything up? Well, and this is super important to be aware of too, Anne-Marie, because that that survival drive, the emotions that it brings up in us that maintain our attachments, weirdly enough, feel like shame, blaming yourself, trying to figure out what you did wrong because that very deep part of yourself wants to maintain that attachment. But you said something that I thought was so important. You said he wasn't acting like himself. And I say this as, you know, a therapist and a coach who's worked sometimes with people for years and seen like the whole arc of a relationship. What if you saw another facet of him that is also part of him that you simply had not been aware of before? The part that didn't feel like him is also actually him. And that's really something I've actually been thinking about, too, because a way that I've kind of coped with the breakup was, like, that person that I saw when I got back from Japan was not someone that I'd want to be with. But you're right, like, it was another part of himself that maybe wasn't, like, super healthy. And that's, he keeps telling me, like, during quarantine, he sorted everything out and he's like better. But he was saying that when he was acting like that, it's because all of these people were telling him to think a certain way and do a certain thing. And he couldn't see his own thoughts. He didn't know how he actually felt because of so many outside people trying to tell him how to feel and how to think. And so over quarantine, he figured out how to separate that with like how he actually feels and then realized that he made a huge mistake and did want to be with me. Well, and that is interesting because he's able to clearly articulate, this is what happened, and this is what I have done since then, and I feel like my internal process is really different, and this is why I'm confident that I will be able to be a better partner for you if you give me another chance. And that's worth something. It is, because people do change. I think the great news is that, Anne-Marie, this is your timeline. If he loves you and wants to be with you, he won't go away. This is your time to do whatever you want with it. Do you know what I mean, Amory? Like, I think as a woman, especially in my 20s, timeline was always around somebody else. I wish I had had the confidence to control that more in my own life. What if, Amory, your new guy is really fun and life-loving and brings you the things that you want right now in a different way than potentially being a caretaker and nurturing your ex through his struggles. A lot of our relationship, I did kind of feel like a caretaker 
felt like I had to like help him achieve his dreams, which I feel like in a relationship, you should want to help your partner like achieve their dreams and like do this. But I felt like I had to sacrifice some of my motivation to give him motivation to like want to do what he needed to do. Yeah. And it got just progressively more taxing on me. And then I was kind of the main one comforting him when I was abroad in Japan in this new place. And then even coming back, it was me giving and giving and giving. And he's saying that he's not like that anymore, but ah, I don't know. And with my new kind of relationship, it doesn't feel like that, like at all, which is really refreshing for me. Yeah. And Amory, I was with an actor in my 20s who would always get sick before an audition. And in a moment of kind of cruelty, I called him out on it. I mean, he hadn't worked for years and he resented me so much. But like, if you guys are both passionate about filmmaking, those are things that you should examine a little bit, like cues of competitive resentment that might not be good for your future goals. Yeah, I've actually kind of thought about that before because he would always just be like, oh, well, like you've already got this or you're doing this. I'm like, okay, you're doing things also. I feel like I was always having to kind of like be like, stop calling yourself a failure like we're all like struggling and just trying to like get work right now yeah it takes a long time to get to know people and character is revealed not through like the you know first few months of romantic bliss it is revealed when people are stressed out when they're facing challenges like these are the moments when people really show us what they're made of and what you're telling us is that when you really think about what the relationship was like for you it was challenging and that it also felt very much about him that there was this like my feelings are sort of more important than your feelings Anne Marie like the whole time almost and we also have to take into consideration the fact that when this guy abandoned you essentially and just like cut off this attachment you went into this space where biologically, if you're like most people, you started idealizing him, thinking about what you might have done wrong to like ruin the relationship, all the things that you could have done differently. And this is like that elephant part of yourself trying to maintain your attachment to someone that your writer brain is telling Anna and I right now that maybe wasn't a good match for you. And it's hard because you're going to have those kinds of feelings for someone who isn't necessarily a good partner. The, the feelings are not reliable. So because you went through this experience, I think that you are being more generous with him than you, you would be without it. Because I don't want to make judgments about the relationship but i but i will say that in this stage of your life what your job is almost is to have relationships with different people in order to learn who you are what you need what feels good to you what feel, doesn't feel good to you so that you can kind of compile this sort of like okay this is what i know what i need because eventually you might connect with like a life partner. And it's really important that that life partner has the character elements that you need in order to feel good. I wonder if one of the, the lessons from this relationship with your ex is that I know I didn't like that. And I'm grateful that I had this experience because I know that now. 
I also don't discount, like you were talking about, Dr. Bobby, the emotional scarring, which I think is important as we are human. It's an important life experience to go through heartbreak. It's important to recognize, I think, the times we are cruel. It's part of growing. But, Amory, if you are like me, when I didn't examine my feelings thoroughly enough and value myself I was totally one of those people that did the long breakup. And it felt like at times my hand was being forced because this person was just so not nice to me. It's like, okay, so I guess I am the one breaking up with you now. Again, because you're not giving me a choice. That's a tough position to be in. Maybe I would support you going back to your ex if he made like full sort of reparations on his own, if he really took your feelings into deep consideration, you know, because Dr. Bobby and I weren't there listening to his attempt to apologize and 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 win back your heart, I would strongly recommend not going back to him, at least for like a good four months. I don't know. What do you think, Dr. Bobby? I'm I'm right there with you, Anna. I mean, my my question for you and Marian, and I, apologies, this is a very like therapisty question, but like, if we were to flip this, why would you want to go back into this? Yeah, so that that's a deep question. Um, I feel like I'm only hitting on like the things that I struggled with in our relationship. So disclaimer: like he was really great still because he's probably gonna listen to this. <laughs> Oh, I bet um, it's wonderful. <laughs> totally fine. Because I need, I, I desperately need like guidance on this. Oh my gosh. I think the big thing for me of like trying to figure out if I want to get back together with him is that I do still have feelings with him despite like everything. And I do like, we've had some really amazing times together and I know like he cares about me so much. Amory, I so feel you. Shit. <laughs> I know. But this this is the thing. When it comes to these kinds of relationships that make you feel kind of anxious and that have these big highs and lows, you know, this is an untherapisty thing to say, but you can't always trust those feelings as being reliable sources of guidance about who's going to be a good partner for you because often it is the most toxic and most unhealthy relationships that make us feel the biggest feels. So it made me feel a little concerned for you when you said that just now, Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, when my ex, when my ex in college who broke my heart mm. um, called me one night and wanted me back, instead of like calling a podcast, <sighs> I ran through the night <laughs> to his fraternity. I like pounded on the door and flew into his arms. And then I was there for like another three months and I realized, oh my God, I feel so bad about myself. That is this like attachment trauma. It flares up and it's like this crazy feeling like I have to reconnect with you that really like drives our behaviors. I mean, like running through the night is so like expected. And then in the cold light of day, you're like, no, this isn't a good relationship for me. So, Anne-Marie, what do your friends and family think? Oh, they've all been super supportive and they're like, do what you want to do. Like, we support you with no matter, you know, what you want to do. If you want to get back together with him or if you want to try this new relationship, like, we support you and trust your judgment. And I'm like, 
tell me what you would do. Like, please help. And I think they were all there, you know, my friends, like we all went to school together. Like they saw like the whole saga with my ex and they, they love him, you know, but they also saw how badly he hurt me during the breakup. And of course they're not going to like be super pumped for me to like go back to that. But I think they're also like, we know that he was like in a bad spot. So if you think he's really changed, then you know go for it but they also don't really know the new guy that I've been seeing because it's so fresh and like I haven't been like hey family and friends meet this guy I've only been seeing for like three weeks (laughs) so it's kind of hard to judge you're a senior are you about to graduate Mm -hmm. I'm graduating in April so so much of your life is about to change I don't know if I were in like a regular part of your life I would tell you to weight on this because you have some big life changes, big life decisions to make. And I want you to be selfish and not take your partner into consideration when you're thinking about how the next, you know, seven years of your life are going to play out. Is that terrible of me, Dr. Bob? No, it has so much wisdom. Because you know what I was just sitting here thinking, Anna, is that you have lived through this. You have, as I have, and seen other people have, like, make some of these choices that lead to more heartbreak and disappointment. You may also have to live through this in order to, like, grow and have your own life experiences where you're like, probably shouldn't have done that. And particularly if, like Anna was saying, you do have these sort of caretaking tendencies to understand, like, what happens to me in relationships when these caretaking tendencies get activated so that, you know, four years from now, you could look at a similar relational situation and potentially make a different choice. I, I think that Anna, you and I are both like, <laughs> it's not going to end well. <laughs> so, Anne Marie, I would table this decision until you graduate, like some long conversations on the phone, and maybe and be upfront with him about this. Really measure the situation. Because right now, I think you're feeling the need to be decisive because you've been in this murky limbo for so long with your heartbreak and loneliness. And getting back together will not be, it'll feel like the healing balm that you needed for about four or five days. Euphoric healing balm. And then there will be a shift slowly a little bit to the pattern that you guys had before, which was maybe wonderful. I don't know. But recognize that you're both are about to have a lot of changes in your life. And so I just want to make sure that you don't close yourself off to any of the opportunity in your life. Dr. Bobby, what do you think? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and just be very, very careful if, if you hear the thought happening in your head, as so many, especially women do, which is he's different or he will be different because lots of women get stuck in bad relationships because of this hope or expectation that it's going to be different than what it had been. Completely. I mean, it, it's so true. And instead, they sort of discount their own experience of, you know, I wasn't good enough or I made these mistakes or he was in a different place then. It's going to be different now. And I mean, you can spend years going around and around that rodeo if that that idea. And so instead, to think about 
given what I know about who this person is as evidenced by what they have shown me so far, is this good enough for me? And if the answer is anything but yes, I wouldn't do it. And Amory, I would look at your relationship in terms of emotional investment. One partner tends to be more generous or maybe loves someone a little bit more than the other partner loves them is maybe a simplistic idea of this. But the idea of being more generous than your partner, I think a lot of women do that. I certainly did that. And Amory is at a place in her life where you kind of have to be selfish if you, you know, if you're really ambitious, don't you think? Like, it's just so fucking hard to get ahead. And I don't know. Now I'm off on a career thing, but it's true though that, that no, yeah. I mean the career thing is a huge part of it for sure. So Amory, think about like if you had to nurture your ex through disappointment, like if he didn't get the approval that he wanted or the grade that he wanted or whatever, like those moments too. If you found yourself having to nurture, and maybe that's a role that you really like. For me, it was difficult especially because I was in relationships with people who were, you know, acting or that kind of competitiveness really seeped into our relationship and it forced me to give more than I wanted. Like I became like the mommy a bit. I bet that made you feel resentful. Oh yeah. We both, especially in the relationship in my twenties, we really resented each other. And I don't think we realized that. What do you think, Anne-Marie? I think... I'm really hearing what both of y'all are saying, and especially like working in like the film industry. It's so hard and like your jobs are constantly fluctuating and opportunities are like so like out of the blue sometimes. And one thing that I kind of regret is when I was studying abroad in Japan, I wasn't fully there because I was in that relationship and the relationship I was in Japan was kind of one-sided. So I don't want to make that mistake again because I look back on that and I just like cry and especially, like, cause I know I'm trying to, like, move to either New York or L.A. to, like, follow my dreams. And I really don't want a relationship to get in the middle of, like, me trying to do what I want to do. That's definitely been, like, a huge thing on my mind. So and, like, deciding wise. factor for me. Yeah, I think that's really smart. And, Amory, you get the ego victory of an ex being like, I fucked up. I'm so sorry. Validating. <laughs> that's like everybody's ultimate I know, fantasy. Everybody, <laughs> everybody wants that. I think that there's no reason to rush back with him. You have an opportunity to really analyze this. And that that's a great gift, too. And try things out with this new guy to have new life experiences. And, you know, maybe in seven, eight months, you guys have some really meaningful conversations. And this is like the love story that you, you know, tell at your wedding or whatever. But you have the luxury, I think, Emery, of digestion and really taking your time. Because if you did get back together with him right now, let's say a month from now, you were like, man, I don't know if this is going to work. Then you will have to do the breaking up initiative and he will cry and he will be like, I love you so much. How can you do this to me? And you'll be like, okay, maybe I won't break up with you. (laughs) 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 And then you'll be breaking up with him like three months later. You know, it's this is 
Am I just awful with this prediction? No, I don't think you're awful. <laughs> but but, if, but if, if that's a scenario that you could see, I, I think be gentle with him. He sounds like a lovely person who does love you very much and probably feels like he really needs you right now, which is something that I have felt very much uh, in relationships. And it's really tough at that age to deal with somebody who has convinced themselves that they need you. Yep, absolutely agreed. And I think, Anna, that's such great advice is for Anne-Marie to just be consistently thinking, what is good for me right now? Yes. What is yeah. good for me? And prioritizing your own well-being and health and wellness. And I wouldn't bring up a new guy. He doesn't necessarily need to have that idea to fixate on. And he will go bananas. Are you connected on social media? Like, could he see pictures of your new guy? Because that's important that he, because he will, Anna, as you called it, yeah. freak out. Right. And then it'll become about the new guy when really this is your venture in life. And it's not right. anybody else's. So I would just try to keep those channels clear. And I think Dr. Bobby brought up a great point. Just minimalizing drama in your life even though drama can be really fun. <laughs> it can be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would keep the men separate from each other to some degree. I think if you find yourself with this new guy, things are really developing, talking about previous relationships can be helpful or whatever. Anne-Marie, what do you think? Do you like the idea of putting the first guy on pause for a few months? I think that's something I really needed to hear. I feel like I've been kind of pressured and I'm trying, I have been pretty honest with both of them about what's going on without like, you know, like I don't want to like tell the new guy, like my whole, like, you know, ex story essentially. But I did tell him like, Hey, like this is happening right now. Like, cause I just feel really guilty having feelings for two people makes me feel like I'm cheating. And so I'm like, like we're kind of on a little break right now. And then with my ex, I told him, like, we have to go so slow. Like, I want to talk. But I think cabling is honestly the greatest thing that I could probably do with my ex, at least because I can't really compare the two of, like, who do I love more? Because I've only known the first guy for a month, barely. And I've known my ex for, a, you know, four years. Yeah, but Amory, make it about you. Just be like... This is me. These are my decisions. I get to make them. You're at such a great time in life that is so stressful. And you have to be selfish if you want to achieve your dreams. And you get to make the decisions. And if you want to tell your ex, which I think you should, it's okay if we talk a few times here and there. But I really need this time to assess everything. And I love you. I always will. Try not to cry, Anne-Marie, if you can. Yes, <laughs> Because you've done that, though. You have you've lived through the pain. You have that scar. So you can move forward with a degree of strength when it comes to him because you've already been cut deep 
Some of the nerves have been dulled. Totally. If I could add to Anne-Marie, I would also advise that you think in advance about how you are going to hold those boundaries. Because when you say, I need some time to myself, this is going to be about me, you're like asking him to maintain boundaries for you. So like, don't call me as much. Oh, that's a great point, Dr. Bobby. So what does she do? Well, because what's going to happen is that he is going to get absolutely active activated on that attachment level. And that will very predictably create a situation where he is now feeling like she's slipping away. So he's going to try to pursue her. So you'll get the texts and you'll get the calls and you'll get the stuff. And so Anne-Marie should be really thinking about how am I going to maintain my healthy boundaries? Because he is getting all activated and scared right now. And that can mean giving yourself permission to not answer the phone, block his stuff for a little while, like so you don't have to see or read or hear the messages because clearly you do care about him. And so it's going to pull this response in you where you respond to him. And if you do that not thoughtfully, it will get very easy to get sucked back into an emotional connection with someone that I think me and Anna are hearing you say you're not sure you want to be in. So you get to decide. And just because someone is pursuing you vigorously does not mean that you need to participate in that. Does that make sense? Uh, that makes total sense, especially because when I told the new guys, like, I need some space to figure out what's going on and how I feel. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk for like two days. And then he like brought me stuff to my door and like wrote me a whole letter. And then I had to like text him like, hey, I got your stuff. Thank you. And then now he's like texting me all the time. So it's like, right. So <laughs> it's so hard to like, establish that distance for sure, or that space. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Your ex could be looking for the safety and security and reassurance of what you had. And you might reflect on your memories with that. Like, oh, this is how it used to be. It could be like that again. He's probably looking at it as like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I miss Amory. This is the path I need to take right now. At least four months maybe of giving yourself. I wish someone had reinforced this again and again when I was in my 20s. You don't have any kids. You don't have a job that's tying you to a particular location. You know, this is a time when you should assess each decision with, like, is this for me? Is there anything that's, like, tugging at me? I should listen to those warning signs. Dr. Bobby, how can she protect herself a little bit from the desire out of loneliness and familiarity to go back to her ex, at least for four months? I think that knowledge is power. And whenever an attachment is threatened, or like you said so insightfully, Anna, that he isn't feeling safe in his own life, in the world, and so there's this biological desire to reconnect, it doesn't mean that it's a good relationship. And Anne-Marie, you are vulnerable because you are clearly a nice person. And I would suspect that you're setting limits like, no, I don't want to talk to you. No, stop texting me is going to feel to you like you're being mean. So I think it would be important to do some work around that where you're like, I have the right to have boundaries. I have the right to have relationships that feel good for me. And also that his sort of protestations of love may be fueled by his own anxiety as opposed to some like, you know, amazing magical love and that he needs to calm down and stand on his own two feet for a while 
so that you both can have the time and space to see who he really is and what he's really capable of. Again, Anna, you brought up another amazing point because people get pregnant. And if you bring children into the world, and I have actually walked by the side of people who have done this, Anne-Marie, they've been in a in a kind of you know, quasi-relationship with somebody that's sort of a mixed bag, and they get pregnant, and they have children with this person, and three or four years later, they're living in a nightmare that they can't get out of easily. And right now, you have a lot of power and control and freedom that you won't have when you have a different level of responsibility responsibility and obligation in like a family situation. So be be real cautious. Thank you. That's really great advice. Oh, Amory, I'm really excited for your future and congratulations on your upcoming graduation. That is awesome. And your career that you have ahead of you, I'm so excited for you. Thank you. That means so much. And Anna, I've been listening to your podcast since I was like literally in high school and oh. I've always like looked up to you so much. So the fact that I'm like talking to you is so insane. Oh my God. I love that. Thank you. And Emery, will you please be in touch? I'm sure we're going to get a lot of response about this call. And I so appreciate you sharing everything with us. It was wonderful. Thank you. And you're so insightful. Like you're very self-aware, Anne-Marie. This is a yes. huge strength, especially for being so young. Oh my gosh. Really. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> I love you, Emery. You know my love for the OG. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, Emery, for calling. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Bye. Dr. Bobby, thank you. You are so wise. <laughs> you are so wise. If this was a great call, it was so fun to be able to give Anne-Marie some direction. I loved it. Thank you again. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Bye, Dr. Bobby. 